If you need to know the law to advance your career in human resources, but you aren't a lawyer, we can help. At Texas A&M School of Law, we offer a career-defining Master of Jurisprudence in HR and Employment Law Policy and Management to help non-lawyers like you navigate the complex HR legal issues every industry faces. Gain the legal skills you need to advance your HR career from one of the most respected law schools in the nation. Visit law.tamu.edu forward slash mjur to learn more. Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. A couple hours each morning, I usually get up and uh, start my reading so that I can prepare for the show. And so that usually includes going through, you know, the major newspapers in America. I spend, you know, time in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, local papers here in Pittsburgh. Um, try to look at some other uh, news sites that I've, you know, come to appreciate over the years. And uh, at this time in history, it is truly overwhelming to read the news. I, I mean, I there is so much specificity as to what is going on in Ukraine. And we've got video to support it. We've got, um, you know, on the field reporting um, reporters right now who, you know, several of whom have given their lives reporting the story, um, several of whom have been injured. I mean, it, it's just, and I appreciate their work in bringing these stories to us, but when you look at them in the aggregate, it is really, um, I don't know, you keep saying, first of all, what can I do? Second of all, you think, are we all in the West going to sit here and let this happen? And the third thing you think is, how did we get here? How did this happen? Um, and so I've turned to a friend of mine, Joe LaConte, who's the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and AWC Family Foundation fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I've known Joe for a bunch of years and you know trust his opinion on things, especially as we look back and kind of see the formation things that have gotten us to the place where we are. So let me bring him onto the program. Joe, welcome in. Kathy, great to be with you. Can you hear me okay? I sure can, Joe. Thank you so much. All right. So um, I'm sure – well, I shouldn't say I'm sure. Let me ask you. Are you similarly overwhelmed when you read the news like I am? Well, it is easy to be overwhelmed, um, but it's also really important to remember that uh, we have seen more dangerous and difficult days than what we're seeing right now. Uh it, there are all kinds of reasons to be anxious about the future. I understand that. Um, but we shouldn't be surprised that really um, desperately wicked regimes uh, are still on the prowl in the world. That shouldn't surprise us. The questions we have to ask ourselves is the questions you've just put put to your audience here, Kathy, is, well, how did we get here? What can we learn from the past as we try to chart a, a course forward? Yeah. Now, Joe, one of my favorite books that you wrote that we're going to talk about as our um, as our conversation goes on is A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, which is about the um, 1914 to 1918 time period. And one of the things that you know I think of when I think of the time period before the Great War, World War One, and kind of the time period we've been in for the last five or so years is there is this persistent belief in the West that we've kind of evolved beyond this kind of warfare. That we yeah. are smarter, that we are sophisticated, that we live in a digital world, that we're reasonable. And so we're not going to have to deal with something like this again. Yeah, I think it's the failure to imagine. It's it's difficult to imagine 
that regimes could behave so badly and the quote-unquote democratic, liberal, uh, um, self-confident states of the West could could stand by and watch it happen. It's hard for us to kind of get our minds around that. I, I understand that perfectly. And just a quick nod then uh, to, to Tolkien and Lewis. They, they lived through a, a similar kind of period of absolute disillusionment on the one hand after the First World War, and then shock and horror that it was happening mm. again 20 years later, a second world war. I mean, imagine that. We'll get to that later. But it, here's something to think about, uh, Kathy. Uh, the rise of authoritarian regimes, wars of aggression, the erosion of basic human rights, a bloody civil war, a refugee crisis in the heart of Europe. Welcome to the 17th century. Mm. That was precisely right. what was going on in 17th century Europe. And out of that period of turmoil came some very deep thinking about the nature of human nature and the nature of political societies. Two basic contrasting visions. I'll just name them and then we can unpack it. Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, the all-powerful state, versus that of John Locke, government by consent, human equality, human freedom, so embraced by the American founders. Those are the two basic political visions. Hobbes versus Locke goes back to the 17th century. And here we are now in the 21st century. Russia, let's face it, Russia is the Hobbesian nightmare mm-hmm. for the European uh, continent right now, isn't it? China yeah. is the Hobbesian nightmare f- uh, f- for the Asian nations, right? Yeah, so let's go back then to, I mean, Hobbes was first. Um, so the the conflict that you're talking about is the dissolution of the Roman Empire, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, all sorts of horror had happened yeah. in Europe in that time. Yeah. Um, everything yeah. from, you know, guerrilla warfare to famine to disease to you name it. And so yeah. this was a, a perfect time in world history for people to start thinking about what human nature is and what governance might mean. Exactly. Um, so talk to us about Thomas Hobbes first. Yeah, exactly. You know, Hobbes uh, lives through the English Civil War, which broke out in the 1640s. And that was basically a contest between the king, who's trying to act without parliament, uh, and the parliament, the parliamentarians say, wait a minute, we're part of this government too. And we, we represent uh, uh, the people to some degree. So it was a, it was a contest, the king trying to rule absolutely. Uh, with a divine uh, a claim to rule by divine right. So you get this bloody English civil war that goes on for a decade. Hobbes lives through that. And his conclusion is, you know, the only way to provide security and safety for people is to have an absolute monarch. You submit yourself to an absolute ruler, an absolute political authority, and you do not question his authority. He will make the decisions for you. You will, you will in, in essence, give up your right to self-government for the sake of security and safety. That's door number one. Okay. So before you go on to door number two, let me say (laughs) that he – and correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't read Hobbes in a long, long time, Joe. Um, But he didn't think that the freedom of the individual should be taken from him. But he didn't – he he thought that it was was in the best interest of the individual to give it up for the ruler. Yeah, I think that's right. He's talking about that was his version of a social contract. You voluntarily give up your rights, your freedoms to the, to the absolute sovereign for the sake of security. That's exactly right. Got that's it. Hobbes. Okay, so that's door number one. Talk to us about door number two. <laughs> well, door number two. The interesting thing is that John Locke, though he's much younger than Hobbes, he also endured the English Civil War. He was a young man. He was a teenager when Charles I, the king who was working a lot of this mischief, 
when Charles I was actually executed. That's how it really got ugly. You know, they execute the king, regicide. That's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. And they abolished the, uh, the church. The established Church of England was also abolished during this time. So think about that. These two stabilizing institutions in Europe, the king, uh, the, you know, the monarchy and the state church, they're done away with. And you have this period of instability, turmoil. Uh, Cromwell comes on to, to rule. Locke is, is growing up in that period as well. Initially, Locke is maybe thinking a little bit like Hobbes, but once you get past the English Civil War, once you now get the king is back, there's a restoration, 1660, and the next couple of uh, decades, Locke is now watching Europe. He's watching these different attempts to exert absolute rule, both in England and also in France with Louis XIV, who calls himself the Sun King, right, the absolute monarch sure. of France. And he's, he's looking at all this turmoil, and he's thinking, no, the way to provide, the way to uh, produce a stable and just society is not through an absolute ruler. It's through government by consent of the governed, when everyone will have a stake in the success of the government. That's so, Locke. That's door number two. Okay, so that's significantly different from Hobbes in that he's saying that that humans in their natural state are free, where yes. I believe Hobbes is saying that in humans in their natural state are going to be at warfare, there's going to be anarchy, and the, right. the leader is going to give us solidity, yes. is going to give us stability. Yes. And ha and and Locke is saying no 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 the human you know uh, natural state is freedom and so the more free we can make him then the better off we are. That's a pretty good summary. Let's let's quote uh, Hobbes here for a moment, uh, where he says uh, yes uh, even though a, an unlimited power men may fancy many evil consequences you may think it's a bad plan, but he says the consequences of the want of it which is the perpetual war of every man against his neighbor the war of all against all. Life will be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's that's Hobbes. That's where he thinks things are going without an absolute monarch. Now, Locke is not naive about human nature and and the dark tendencies of human nature, but he sees beyond it. And I think the way he sees beyond it, Kathy, he really has a strong belief in the idea that we're made in the image of God. There's a capacity here for reason, for virtue, for self-government. And that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, to have to have choice, to have choice. So let me just read you a line from Locke and then throw it back to you. Mm-hmm. So Locke in his second treatise, which was so influential on the American founders, he says, men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, all servants of one sovereign master sent into the world by his order and about his business, they're his property, whose workmanship they are made to last during his, not another's pleasure. Let me emphasize the word workmanship, the workmanship of one omnipotent, infinitely wise God. That is a biblical allusion, I believe, to Ephesians 2. Sure, we are his knew his Bible, and he is very strong on this imprint of God on human nature in a way that Hobbes is not. Right, so different master, basically. Different master. Good way to put it. Yeah. Good summary. Okay. Uh, let me introduce my guest again, Joe LaConte, director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Um, so, Joe, take us into the present then. We're talking yep. about Russia and Ukraine. We're trying to ask the question, as I said, how yep. did we get here? Yep. 
Yeah. Um, you're saying that the Hobbesian view and the Lockean, is that, is that the appropriate word? Yeah, Lockean. Yeah. Okay, the Lockean view are at play in this conflict we're seeing. Talk about it. That's exactly right. They're, they're, they're once again, and they never really have stopped being at war with each other. They're once again at war with each other. Think about it. What have the Ukrainians demonstrated to the world? They have demonstrated to the world that Locke's vision of human freedom remains deeply compelling. Mm -hmm. And you have all these men and women, too, and others filling Molotov cocktails, mm -hmm. willing to die for their country. I got to tell you, every time I hear the Ukrainian president speak to us, oh I get a little ashamed as an American. I don't know about you, yep. but uh, this is a guy who's willing to lay down his life for freedom. That's the Lockean vision of human freedom and human equality, government by consent. And what does Russia represent under Putin? It's a Hobbesian view. And the way he's governed his own state, it tells us all we need to know about Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. This is Thomas Hobbes. This is the nightmare. This is really the Hobbesian nightmare that Europe, back to your earlier point, Europe thought it had really tamed this whole thing after the Second World War. You know, the European Union, European community, we're at peace, economic uh, interdependence. We'll never see another war in the European continent. Well, here we are. Here we are, because you cannot you cannot check tyrants just through through paper treaties. It's going to take more than that. So that the Hobbesian view that we see at play in Russia's perspective and China's perspective right now, what how did Thomas Hobbes account for evil? Did he think that sin was something that was, first of all, real? And did he think it was something that was in every person? That's an excellent question. And as I've, as I've been reading again through Hobbes, he is a complicated and I think inconsistent thinker mm. in that he sees the darkness of human nature, war of all of all against all. But then he's willing to confer all of this power on a single person right. or legislative body. And that just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Right. Because that, 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 that's the weak link in the system. That's exactly right. Why would you confer all that power on an individual and believe that that person would act with justice? consistently act with justice. This is where I don't understand Hobbes. The only, and how he could argue this way, the only re uh, rationale I can give is he had, he had seen such devastation through the lack of a strong political authority, the breakdown of law and order, that I think it just, it scared the stuffing out of yeah, him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, this was his answer. This was his answer. Well, there was, there was decades of trauma that that continent had seen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can see that. I, and, and just looking at how, you know, I am fully, you know, vested, enmeshed in the Christian worldview and have been pretty much my whole life. And even I, when I see something like what has happened since Russia invaded Ukraine, I am shocked. And yeah. so looking at someone who's outside a Christian perspective, who looks at the world, who wants to think that everybody is, you know, yeah. at their heart, at their very essence, good. Yeah. It is hard to grapple with these things that we're seeing in the news. Yeah, I think that's right. It is, it is really hard for us that individuals could become so bent on such a violent, brutal course of action. And yet Vladimir Putin has been showing us that. He yeah, showed us no, that in right. Syria, yep. of course. He showed us with the invasion of Crimea. Right. And yet we just didn't really want to confront it, did we? No. Because it's just too troubling to really confront it. It would demand all kinds of difficult choices. You know, it reminds me of a line from Winston Churchill, and this is the, the, the 1938 Munich Agreement, when the European democracies, Great Britain and France, uh, they uh, compelled Czechoslovakia 
to give a portion of its own nation away, a portion, the Sudetenland, mm -hmm. give it to Adolf Hitler for the false promise of peace. Right. When Winston Churchill, who was not in power at the time, when he heard of the agreement, here's what he said on the, on the, on the floor of the, uh, of the House of Commons. They could have chosen shame or war with honor. They chose shame and they'll get war too. Oh, God. That's, I think, where we are. I'm not saying we should be sending American troops on the ground but I'm saying we could have done a lot more to mm -hmm. arm the Ukrainians prior to this crisis moment, but we didn't have the stomach for it. Right, right. And now we get the bombing of a train depot, and now we're in serious straits. How are we going to get the the uh, How are we going to get the equipment there? I mean, yes. it's just it's a it's a really difficult circumstance. Yes, right. our choices get more constrained. Yep, they do. They get more constrained. So, keeping in mind that we're we're trying to make sense of where we are currently in history, um, but the only way to do that, of course, is to learn the lessons of the past. Um, so we talked about uh, the English Civil War. We talked about uh, 30 Years War, the end of the uh, fall of the Roman Empire and all the cataclysm and the thought trajectories that kind of burst out of that. Um, so let's fast forward then to World War One, which you wrote about so well um, in this book. And then, of course, you mentioned Churchill before we went to break. Um, so talk about that era, why it attracted you at first and why you decided to write a book about it. Yeah, I think what I learned from uh, teaching uh, uh, Western civilization and American foreign policy there at the King's College in New York, uh, that the impact of the First World War on the world was so remarkable and powerful and in many ways so destructive. Mm -hmm. Not just the war itself, the destruction of the war, it's what came in its wake. And all the destructive ideologies, fascism, communism, eugenics, scientism, they all take flight in the years after the First World War. And this relates to our, our topic today, Kathy. I mean, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Ukraine is forcibly brought into the Soviet Union uh, after the successful communist revolution. They're forcibly brought into the Soviet Union. And throughout that, that relationship, that, force, that forced relationship, Joseph Stalin, the head of, uh, of the Soviet Union in the 1930s, he orchestrates a famine that kills millions of Ukrainians. These are Ukrainian peasants who wouldn't bend to the, to the will of Stalin and give up their land uh, for the sake of this communist vision. So the Ukrainians justly despise the Russians for what they, have, what they did to them over decades. And the first chance that Ukrainians had to break away from the Soviet Union, they took it in 1991 when it's all collapsing. And then Mikhail Gorbachev has to resign in disgrace, and the Soviet Union is no more. It's on the ash heap of history, to borrow from Ronald Reagan. So the Ukrainians voted with their feet the first chance they could to be an independent nation. That's worth keeping in mind. But back to your question, that the, the aftermath of the First World War helps to explain so much the rise of these radical ideologies, the birth of Soviet communism, and the millions and millions of lives destroyed because of it. Here we are. So you can't forget um you can forgive um and of course that's what jesus calls us to every person who um decides to follow him but generations after generations you know i, I am who i am because of my parents and my parents are who they were because of their parents. And so, you know, the kinds of things that i read about in my family stories about my great great grandmother, i yeah. see in me. I really do. Um, and I never knew her, but there's something about her, and it's more than blood, that is in me. And so when you look at, at, at 
the Ukrainians today, as you said, um, they are who they are because of what they have seen and what their parents have seen and what their grandparents um, have seen. Um, So we had two great writers, uh, Tolkien and Lewis, who both uh, lived through World War One and um, saw World War Two coming on the horizon. And so there's so much that was such a fertile time um, for, I, I don't know, coming to grips with the world and trying to come to grips with human yes. nature. So just speak yes. into that a bit uh, and and the kinds of stuff it produced in their minds. Yeah, that's a terrific question, Kathy. Thanks for asking. You know, one of the things that strikes me is I've poured over their works, especially during the Second World War. Because remember, Tolkien starts writing The Lord of the Rings around 1937-38. That's the, Mut- that's the Munich Pact. That's the crisis of the Munich Pact. Yeah. So the sense that war is in the air now again. That's when he starts writing The Lord of the Rings in earnest, and it takes on a much darker tone than The Hobbit. And he acknowledges this in a letter to his publisher. And he says, the, the, the darkness of the current time has something to do with it, mm. he acknowledges. Mm. C.S. Lewis starts writing The Space Trilogy, uh, a book really about the fall, the spiritual fall of man. It, it comes out in 1938. <laughs> Again, mm. the Munich moment. And so they begin writing their works, their great epic works, the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis gets the idea for the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, part of the idea for it, of course, when the, the children are being evacuated from London because of the blitz on London sent out in the countryside of a professor, right? Right. So I think that the onset of the Second World War created a real sense of urgency among these men to get on with their callings. In the midst of the crisis, they don't just shrink away into a corner and throw their hands up. They just get on with their tasks, with their Christian callings. And that's a deeply encouraging story, Kathy. You brought up something that kind of made me laugh out loud. I remember the first time I read The Hobbit. And The Hobbit, um, and I know people who are listening who've read this book are, you know, are going to resonate with what I say, that it's a, it's a charming, funny, clever story. It's an adventure, but it's charming. And then you move yes. on because you're, you're excited about The Hobbit because it was so great and yes. sweet. And then you open the Lord of the Rings and you think, what the heck happened? <laughs> what? Like, it's it's like with yes. Jekyll and Hyde, like, who wrote this? Um, yes. And it's not that the Lord of the Rings isn't charming because there are many charming parts of it. And that's what makes uh, Tolkien so attractive is that there are such serious concepts that are so winsomely displayed at times. Um, yes. There's such a great humor to it. But um you're saying Tolkien was seeing something coming on the horizon. He had already seen World War One, World War Two was coming, and he put him in a different frame of mind. Yes, and he's he's writing the Lord of the Rings right through the Second World War, through the war years. And I'll, I'll quote you a, lo- a couple of lines here: one from Tolkien, one from Lewis. I think the darkness of those years really did influence their imagination, their literary imagination. Here's a line from the Lord of the Rings: "The wide world is all about you, Frodo." You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. The sense that England cannot escape the fury of the Nazis as much as they'd wanted to. C.S. Lewis in The Horse and His Boy has a wonderful line, similar kind of line. He says, in that golden age, when the witch and the winter had gone, the smaller woodland people of Narnia were so safe and happy that they were getting a little careless. Hmm. I am convinced these men have in their minds the attempt by Great Britain to stay out of any kind of European war, to avoid it at all costs. And that is really working on their imaginations. And I think through their works, they're warning against that. Remember the, remember this, the, the scenes in The Lord of the Rings, the last march of the Ents, 
these tree-like creatures who don't want to get engaged. They want to be neutral. They want to be like Switzerland. Well, they can't. It's come upon them. The last march of the ends. I'm convinced that is very deliberate on Tolkien's part. England has to get engaged in the conflict. They have to stand alone, literally, for a couple of years before the United States even gets in the war. And that is vivid in there. I mean, remember, they're right there. The, the only thing that separates England from Nazi Germany is the English Channel and Winston Churchill. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, which isn't very much. And who can blame them? Who, I mean, you, you look right. at the bucolic countryside of England That's right. that Tolkien and Lewis both love, especially Tolkien absolutely loved. And yes. you think about the, the Shire and the hobbits living their sweet little existence in their perfect little places yes. and their beautiful doorknobs yes. and their fireworks when it was somebody's birthday and everything was so lovely who would who would blame them for wanting to stay there but the problem is that there comes a time yes Right. There comes a time. And that's what we're seeing in Ukraine, that there comes a time. And so you see somebody, Zelensky, kind of Hobbit-esque, you know, in that he, you know, looked very unprepared for the task. You know, stand-up comedian, one dancing with the stars. A lot of people thought he was fluff. And all of a sudden you fast forward to today and he's, you know, one of the global heroes, one of the most inspiring people who's on the world stage i mean talk about that evolution yes he's shown he's shown his medal hasn't he and i think back to uh, to your point here the ukrainians just i think they they from what i can see from the interviews and all they did not imagine that the russians would do this Mm -hmm. remember what the ukrainians agreed to back in in 1991 92 when the soviet union collapsed they gave up all their nuclear weapons right I think they had the third largest amount of nuclear weapons in the world at the time, and they gave it up with a promise of security from the United States, uh, from 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 Russia itself. Uh, Bill Clinton signed that treaty. So they they just did not imagine that the Russians could behave in a way that seemed like such a throwback to the 19th century or the 18th century, the Napoleonic age. And but here's here's Zelensky. He. He has risen to the occasion in a, in a Churchill-like quality and disregard for his own personal safety that I think is shaming many of us in the West. Mm. It's, it's astonishing to watch. It is astonishing to watch. Let me throw another quote at you here. This is, um, this is quoted in the Washington Post. I read it yesterday or the day before. Um, a Ukrainian battalion commander said this, quote, If you want to understand Russia and Ukraine, we, Ukraine, are Gondor. Russia is Mordor, very close mm. and very dangerous. We need Gandalf and some hobbits. <laughs> Boy, send me that quote, would you? That is I terrific will. because I'm, I'm working on some essays and I'm going to use that quote. in the. That's fascinating that they see it in those terms. And I think that's part of the reason that the works of, of Lewis and Tolkien, particularly Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, continues to resonate. Why? Because it, it's the real world, quote unquote, real life, it's it's being played out what what was seems to be an imaginary world in the lord of the rings is being played out in real life the the idea of a almost irresistible evil uh and the idea of innocence uh, men and women who are trying to live their lives in peace and in uh, in a in, in some kind of decency and now they can't fence it out. We can't forever f- fence it out. So art imitates life. Life imitates yeah. art, doesn't it? Yeah. And art can teach us about life, right? Can teach us what we can't 
uh, one of the beautiful things about it is it helps us to see things that we can't we're resisting looking at. Yes. Um, and it yes. helps. And I think it can help us to be brave also. Um, yes, I think that's where Tolkien and Lewis, they, they really believe. I think they use the, the genre of myth because they believe that life itself had kind of a mythic heroic quality, yeah. or at least it could yeah. if we're alive to it. And myths do that. They, yeah. they, they, ex, they accent that, those qualities. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, how J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism in the cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. Um, you wrote in there, as I remember, um, Joe, that the Hobbit was kind of modeled after the average British soldier that yes. Tolkien observed in World War I. Um, and that average British soldier is very... Um, I, I'm sure has a lot of qualities in common with the average Ukrainian soldier today. That's exactly right, because the average British soldier, Britain didn't have in the First World War, at least not the first part of it, it didn't have a, a, a quote-unquote professional army. Uh, it, uh, it was a volunteer army, and so you had uh, shopkeepers, mm-hmm. fishermen, clerks, uh, farmers, now suddenly thrown into combat, and what Tolkien saw in a way he would not have seen otherwise the incredible heroism of these little people, these ordinary little people, and he says it explicitly, his Sam Gamgee is modeled on the ordinary English soldier that I knew in the 1914 war and considered so far superior to myself. Mm. There was a real humility to Tolkien and all that. And yeah, this is exactly what we're seeing with the Ukrainians. There's a hobbit-like stubbornness. And Tolkien commented about this, about, about the hobbits. They can surprise you at a pinch and how they can be as tough as oaks, soft as butter, it seems, but sometimes as tough as oaks when the, when the challenge comes. Now, that's not always true of a culture, but it's true right now of the Ukrainians, and that's impressive. Joe, talk about this project that you started before um, COVID started and probably, you know, completely screwed up all your plans um, to <laughs> turn a document, turn the book that we're talking about yep. into a documentary film. Yeah, we are we are in the throes of it now, actually, Kathy. We have episode one of a five-episode documentary film series complete. Episode one is complete. Each one will be about an hour long. We'll tell the story of Tolkien and Lewis, their friendship, their experience of war, and, of course, their creative works. I'll boil it down to three words, war, friendship, and imagination, because it's, it's the crucible of war, World War I and World War II, that makes possible their amazing friendship. And it's their amazing friendship that makes possible the creation of their of their great imaginative epic works, war, friendship and imagination. So we're going back to the UK, my film team and I, I hope this summer we'll be there for a couple of weeks. We'll try to finish filming the rest of the series. Once we have that in our hands, then we go to Amazon or Netflix sometime later this year and say, OK, guys, we have episode one done. We have we've shot the rest of the of the series. Now let's make a deal <laughs> and, and give us uh, give us the funds to finish the rest. We we maintain complete editorial control. That's why we're doing it this way. Well, you know, I've been completely geeked about this project since the day you told me about it. I mean, I am personally invested in it. I love the whole thing. Is the is it fully funded? Are you still taking donations from people? We're still taking donations. In fact, what we might do is it's uh, hobbitwardrobe.com is our website, hobbitwardrobe.com. We should probably try to arrange, perhaps, uh, Kathy, for you and John. Maybe we can figure out a private screening event. Oh, uh, you know, that would a, be awesome. A, a, YouTube, a YouTube screening event for episode one. What yeah. would you think about that? I would love that. 
<laughs> I mean, I would completely love that. I would be, I would, listen, for those of you who are listening who think, I love this kind of thing. I, you know, I've, I've been seriously impacted by the works of Lewis and Tolkien. First of all, you have to check out the book that Joe wrote. Let me just give you the title again, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. And if you're interested in this type of project becoming a documentary film that you could watch on Prime, hobbitwardrobe.com. Donate as I have donated there, hobbitwardrobe.com. Dr. Joe Lacante, such a pleasure. Thanks for joining me again. It is always a delight being with you, Kathy. Anytime. My phone lines are open. Terrific. All right. That's Joe Lacante. Find out more information about him at Joe. Is it JoeLacante.com, Joe? Uh, 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 Joe at JosephLacante.com is my email address. Or, or, I'm sorry. The uh, website address is uh, Joseph.Lacante.com. Uh, yeah. Great. Terrific. All right. And you can also find information about him or contact him at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today. Great news from Rocket Mortgage. You could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash-out refinance today. In fact, in the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. That means you could unlock thousands of dollars. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock all that cash in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up because nobody knows how long these low rates will last. Put your hard-earned money to work. Make your life better. Build a home office. Remodel your kitchen. Or simply save that cash for a rainy day. Today's rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.5%, 3.48% APR, so you can lock in a great low monthly payment. When you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rates current as of 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. MLS consumeraccess.org number 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information.